and church family. I would invite you to take your Bibles and turn to Luke 22. Luke 22. Luke 22 is where we have been, and we are picking up where we were. If you're joining us for the first time or the first time in a long time, we have been examining the Gospel of Luke and working through this. We're nearing the end. I hope that we'll be able to finish this book about November, so that'll be good. Uh, but let's uh, talk about where we were. Last time we met, we talked about Peter's betrayal, and we kind of left off with those who had taken Jesus into captivity, beating him. And uh, I just want to make one quick comment about that. Usually when folks are taken into captivity, just like here, uh, you don't beat them before the trial. Okay, so this is a uh, this is a wrong, a suffering, an injustice that Jesus suffers even before these kangaroo trials start, right? The, the, even before these kangaroo trials start. So here we're going to go uh, and look at the text today. We're going to see uh, in this passage here how Jesus handles suffering and how he gives us a model here for suffering as Christians. So let's look at this. Jesus on, it really should say Jesus on trials because he's actually going to move through three different kind of courts here in the, in the middle of all this. And so it should be Jesus trials, plural, but that was my typo. So anyhow, here's what the word of God says. Luke twenty two sixty six. this is the word of God, hear it. When day came, the assembly of the elders of the people gathered together, both chief priests and scribes, and they led him away to their council and they said... If you are the Christ, tell us. But, he said to them, if I tell you, you will not believe. And if I ask you, you will not answer. But from now on, the Son of Man shall be seated at the right hand of the power of God. So they all said, are you the sons of God then? And he said to them, you say that I am. Then they said, what further testimony do we need? We have heard it ourselves from his own lips. Then the whole company of them arose and brought him before Pilate. And they began to accuse him, saying, We found this man misleading our nation and forbidding us to give tribute to Caesar, and saying that he himself is Christ a king. And Pilate answered him, Are you the king of the Jews? And he answered him, You have said so. Then Pilate said to the chief priests and the crowds, I find no guilt in this man. But they were urgent, saying, He stirs up the people, teaching throughout all Judea from Galilee, even to this place. When Pilate heard this, he asked whether this man was a Galilean. And when he learned that he belonged to Herod's jurisdiction, he sent him to Herod, who was himself at, in Jerusalem at that time. And when Herod saw Jesus, he was very glad. For he had long desired to see him because he had heard about him and he was hoping to see some sign done by him. So he questioned him to some length, but he made no answer. The chief priests and the scribes stood by vehemently accusing him. And Herod with his soldiers treated him with contempt and mocked him. And this, this verb here grabbed me when I was studying this week. Then arraying him in splendid clothing... I think that's a reference to the purple they wrapped him in. He sent him back to Pilate. And Herod and Pilate became friends with each other that very day. For before this, they had been at enmity with each other. 
Pilate then called together the chief priests and the rulers and the people and said to them, You brought me this man as one who was misleading the people, and after examining him before you, behold, I did not find this man guilty of any of your charges against him. Neither did Herod, for he sent him back to us. Look, nothing deserving death has been done by him. I will therefore punish and release him. Amen. May God have blessing to the reading of his holy and errant infallible word. Because the grass withers and the flowers fade. Say with me, know it, church. But the word of our God endures forever. What is the darkest year in human history? You ever ask that question? What's the darkest year in human history? Like, what is the darkest year as far as the most awful things that have ever happened? Some of you might say 2020, and 2020 was bad, right? We had a global shutdowns. Many of you may have lost jobs. Probably we lost church members. We lost relatives to sicknesses, various kinds. It was bad. Some of you may point to times from World War II started. There may be different things, but if you ask most historians, they'll tell you it's 536 A.D. 536 A.D. is the worst year in human history. Pastor T.Y., there was a volcano that erupted in Iceland and spewed a cloud of soot into the atmosphere that caused a winter-long summer. It's recorded in China that when they planted their crops in that year, their historians said snow fell on the ground where their crops were planted during the summer. It's said that a third of what was left of the Roman Empire and a virus began to spread, wiping out a third of the population that was left of the old Roman Empire, ushering in a totally different time and way of doing things. And it was a great year of tragedy and death. An average temperature, I think, in the summertime was around, I think, 1.5 to 2 degrees Celsius in, in many parts of Eastern Europe in the summer, which is about, what, 32, 34 degrees Fahrenheit in the summer? Can you imagine that? darkest year. Well, I don't know if it is. Historians seem to be in agreement with it, but I I can tell you this. I think what we're looking at today in the text is one of humanity's darkest moments in history. And that is the moment where they put Jesus Christ on trial. All right. Now let's look at this closely. As I said in verse 63 from last time, they had already beat him, mocked him before the trial began, which was illegal in a violation of law. Now they're moving into the first court here, which is Jesus before the assembly of elders, the scribes, and the chief priests, the Pharisees, the Sadducees, those first citizens we've been reading about in the Gospel of Luke. And what is it they are examining? They're examining his teaching, his preaching. I hate to use this word religious because I feel that that word has almost become void and not useful. Uh, I think that uh, it would be better to say maybe theological is a better term, theological claims. Uh, you know, this section here where he stands before the Pharisees and the Sadducees, this is really an affront to any liberal theologian who's going to say, well, Jesus never made claims to be God, to be God in human form. There's a reason the Pharisees and the Sadducees and the scribes want to kill him, okay? And he makes some very clear pronouncements about who he is in this section. So let's look at this together and examine this, right? All right, so they led him away to the council and led him, and and they said. Now, what's interesting to me is usually the high priest or the high priest, they kind of got to govern a lot of their own affairs internally, sort of like uh, how we have the U.S. government and First Nations have sort of an agreement, right? So like in Cherokee, 
right? We often say Cherokee, North Carolina, but Cherokee's kind of its own deal, isn't it, right? They, they have their own government laws, and the, the, but the federal government will step in from time to time. Uh, well, you have a similar thing here, except with heavier taxation, uh, with the Romans and Judea and the Israelites there. And so they kind of broken up, and they've given a certain amount of, of power to that court to handle their own kind of Jewish issues. And so they have this ability, and it was very common practice for the high priest to not ask leading questions in this courtroom setting. They were supposed to sort of function similar to what we would see. Uh, this is probably a bad example, but the best I could come up with this week. In Robert's Rules of Order, which a lot of Baptist churches use to kind of help them keep the peace in a, in a business meeting, the moderator is not supposed to inject his opinion, right? He's just supposed to moderate and say, here's the piece of business on the floor. Uh, I'll now take votes for or against or whatever, but he's not supposed to say what he thinks about it. And we have a very good moderator here at this church that does a great job. He's also a lawyer, so that helps too, doesn't it? But uh, so the chief priest is not really supposed to, you know, ask leading questions to somebody that's on trial before the council. And we see here in this text yet another unjust violation of the law of the land. They've already beat him. Now they're going to go with this. If you are the, what's it say, church, in verse 67, the question here, you are the what? Christ, which, you know, for some of us, you might think that, Jesus' name is Jesus Christ, like Christ is his last name and Jesus is his first name. That's not true. Like, that's not, that's not his name. It is a title. Christ is a title. Christ is really the kind of Greek word from the old Hebrew word, which is uh, Mesua, which is, you want to take a guess what that probably means? It's Messiah. That's right, yeah. So Christ is the Greek equivalent of Messiah, right, in, in, in their language. So he's asking him, are you the What? Are you the Messiah, right? That's what Christ means. It means Messiah. And so Jesus answers him, right? And again, he's aware that this court's already made up its mind. Look what Jesus' response is. If, you, if I tell you, you would not believe. So first of all, let me just make this very clear. You know, I've been very clear in, the, in, in my teachings in front of everyone, but even if I told you again now, you still wouldn't believe me. He goes to say, and if I ask you, you won't answer. But from now on, the Son of Man. Do me a favor. If you're a note taker, I want you to highlight that Son of Man title. Jesus is making a very clear, distinct statement about himself here when he calls himself the Son of Man. Some of you might read this and think he's saying, oh, I'm, you know, he's making a, a comment about his humanity. Like that he's a, a human person just like them. He's a child of a woman, so he's son of man. Do me a favor and take your Bibles and turn over to the crisp. Keep a thumb right here where we're at today. Keep, and let's flip back to Daniel, the book of Daniel in the Old Testament. Okay, And we've been studying this on Wednesdays. If you're not coming, I would invite you to come. It's been an excellent time in the book of Daniel. And I want you to see something here. Daniel is a prophet in the Old Testament. He is... Uh, He's an old man, he's in his 80s, and he has this dream 
where he sees these four kingdoms arise out of the chaos of the nations, each one more frightful than the next until the fourth one is the most frightful. And then we have a courtroom scene. Isn't that interesting? We go from this like scene of all of these different prophetic beasts in his nightmares that, that scare him to death. He even says his, his skin changed color because of what he saw. And then he, he goes on and he describes uh, what happens here. The beasts are put to death, right? And it says here, if you'll pick up in verse 13 of Daniel 7, it says, I saw in the night visions, and behold, with the clouds of heaven, there came one like, what's it say, church? The Son of Man. And he came to the Ancient of Days and was presented before him. And to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all peoples and nations and languages should serve him. Who were they serving? The Son of Man, right? His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away, and His kingdom one that shall not be destroyed. Now flip back to uh, Luke chapter 22 where we are here. So what's Jesus saying here? He's making a very clear connection. You've got a room full of Old Testament scholars who were intimately acquainted with the writings of Daniel, and He has just called Himself the Son of Man. So what's he saying here? He is saying, I am the one who has ultimate authority and all of these little kangaroo courts that we're, we're seeing happen here, they will all really bow to me in the future here. This is what it is. You only have any authority because I have. there is an authority here that he has. He is, he is equal to the Ancient of Days because only God himself can have this kind of title and this kind of reign. So this title, Son of Man, this is a tip of the hat to his divinity, to his divinity, right? It says here, shall be seated at the right hand of God, of the power of God. And you just read what that looks like in Daniel chapter 7. That's exactly what he's referring to. We see the same thing in Revelation, a very similar scene to Daniel there with the courtroom. Revelation chapter 1, you can look at this up later. See Jesus standing there in, in being installed in this position as the right hand of God and how he interacts with him and it is being fulfilled. So he's making a very clear statement here. So when, when liberal theologians make statements like Jesus never said he was God in human form. Yes, he did. He makes a very clear, distinct connection with Daniel's prophecy and who he truly is. And that is God in human form. All right. So that's just all... Lies Satan tends to cook up and use others' wagging tongue to say because it's not found in the Word of God. All right, then there's another question that follows up with that. Are you the Son of God then? And he said to them, you say that I am. Oh, that sounds familiar, doesn't it? Remember that little story in the Old Testament about the burning bush? Moses says, but who will I tell Egypt that sent me. And the burning bush says, tell them that. Oh, there we go. I am sent me, right? Another little tip of the hat there in the answering of the questions. Then they said, what further testimony do we need? We have heard it for ourselves with his own lips. So the first court here, they're examining the religious claims, the theological claims, and they are rejecting Jesus because he does not fit their corrupt paradigm for their purposes. Next group here. Next is Pilate. 
Pilate is being, he's being sent to Pilate because remember what I told you, their court can't execute. They need Roman authority to execute somebody. So they're sending them to Pilate here who is trying to keep peace and trying to keep Jerusalem from erupting into chaos during this Passover feast. And uh, it says here, he comes to him and his, what Pilate is looking at and examining here is Jesus' political ambitions. What is the charge that they give them there? Found this man listening our nation, forbidding us to give tribute to Caesar. Right? He's claiming, claiming to be the only and rightful king of the Jews. So we're, we're being told by him not to do that. But if you'll recall, during Jesus' preaching and teaching ministry, there was a whole discussion about paying taxes. Do you remember this? And Jesus told the disciples, he said, Render unto Caesar what is Caesar's, and render unto God what is so Jesus has already instructed them that they are to pay taxes when taxes are due, and they are to pay unto God what, what is required in the law. And here in this passage, they're just making stuff up. They're just trying to get him executed, and out of the way is their efforts. Boy, you can't think of a better song, new song, than to learn the one today, right? What others intend for evil, here God is going to intend for good. And what is... And, you know, Luke is pretty generous to Pilate. He doesn't really lay the hammer on him like some of the others. We don't read about his wife being struck with dreams and him doing the dramatic thing of washing the hands and saying, I'm free of him. You know, we don't hear any of that in Luke's account. Just sort of Pilate says here, I find no guilt in this man. They protest and put pressure on him. And yet in the midst of all of this, he, uh, he says he finds sort of a loophole. They say he's a Galilean, so I'm going to send him to Herod, who's another kind of you know, political leader there. He's a Jew who has made deals with the Romans. Now, this is not the same Herod who is Herod the Great whenever Jesus is... Uh, all the kids of his generation were executed two years and under in the beginning part of Luke and in the early part of the Gospels. That Herod died about four years after Jesus was born. He was the one that built a lot of the things that we see in the Jerusalem that is there. But it's not the same guy. That Herod the Great was a wicked, wicked man. He executed children. He executed his own children that were most apt to take over as his successors for fear that they might oust him and take his authority away. And so the Herod that is left here is sort of a shadow of the Herod that was here. But if you'll notice here, it uh, tells us that first him and Pilate weren't really good friends until this happens here. And Herod has heard about Jesus. Where has Herod heard about Jesus? This Herod has probably heard about Jesus from John the Baptist, right, before John lost his head. So he has heard of this man who is able to cure the blind, who is able to walk on water, who is able to calm the storms. He's, he's heard of these signs and wonders being talked about all throughout his kingdom. But notice here what Herod says. Herod is fixated on what? He wants to see a what? What does he tell him? He wants to see a sign. Do another trick for us, Jesus. That was really cool how you made the fish and the loaves appear. Do it again, right? If you could uh, walk on the water, we'd really like to catch that on YouTube and put it on there. Something really fantastic. That's what we want to see. And to be quite honest, this is sometimes our approach, isn't it? Why, certainly we like to think of ourselves in this narrative as people who are ones who can resonate with Christ and and following the unjust trial that he faces here. But if we were honest, most of us are approaching Christ like the first court, the second court, or the third court. In the first court, 
Some of us approach Christ because we want him to fit a certain set of predisposed uh, theological concerns. Uh, We want him to be uh, a Pharisee that can take God's law and beat up others and use it as a behavior trick to get people to act and behave the way they want. Or we want to use Jesus to our own advantage to gain over others. This is not the Jesus of the New Testament. It's not the Jesus of reality, right? And so we sometimes stand condemned in that camp. Or we are like Pilate. What was Pilate's big issue? Pilate's issue is this. Pilate knows about Jesus, and he's not really upset with him or mad at him for what he has done. But Pilate doesn't want to be concerned with him. He doesn't want any like bearing of Jesus' ministry in his life day to day. He just wants Jesus to kind of be over here, away from him and away from his affairs, and he wants to be left alone to live how he wants to live. That's how Pilate is approaching and judging Jesus, just as something not to trouble me, right? And then finally, Herod here, his approach to Jesus and his judgment on Jesus is at best infantile. That's probably the best way I can say it. Jesus, do something else for me. Relieve me of this sickness, Lord. God, if you would, please just supply this one need that I have. If you could get me a new car, a better job, get me this, get me that. And the demands that you have made on Christ are no different than the ones that Herod tries to pull out of him whenever he stands in his courtroom. What are we to do? Well, the invitation here in this text is that we would examine Jesus as well. Remember what I said earlier. This is truly not Jesus who is on trial as much as it is these courtrooms that are on trial with him. We must examine Jesus in this text just as they did. We must take a close, careful look at who he is. If he is the son, as the Pharisees have pointed out here, then I must worship him. If he is the king, as Pilate has pointed out here, I must obey him. And if he rose from the dead, then I must accept him. The guilt in this passage is on those who are trying him, not on Christ. We are as guilty as any of these silly kangaroo courts that are trying to contain the creator and sustainer of the universe. You know, here's the truth and reality. If I am guilty, I must die. Right? I mean, this is what Jesus' scrutiny is over, and it's true for us as well. I tell you, it has been a rough two-week span in our community. It has been rough. There has been tragedies and death of a violent nature in our community, of a violent nature. I heard somebody say to me this week, Well, they're just weeding themselves out. Bothered me. I understand what they're saying. Hopefully it'll kind of burn itself out like a forest fire and the bad stuff will go away and it won't hurt my family. But friends, Christ's death is a costly thing. Souls are precious. God's will is for them to know him. And I, and I read about all these different ones. One is connected with our church family here. One of them was somebody's niece that goes to church here as a member here. And I read all these and hear about these things and I wonder, 
Do any of them know Christ as their Lord and Savior? You know, I keep a, I keep a minister's log. Have I ever told you all this? Everybody I've buried, married, and baptized. I write their names down. I've got this log just for me. Nobody else sees it, just me. Well, Jesus sees it. Me and Jesus, that's it. I guess my wife and kids will get it one day when I'm gone. They can check you off if you come by my casket on my minister's log. <laughs> You're not on the list, mister. No, I'm just kidding. Well, not the dead ones anyway, but anyhow. I was looking on there. I was entering one because we had a precious church member die this week. And, uh, and I was looking. I've got several categories on my minister's log. I've got their name, how old they were, when they died, when we buried them, where we buried them, how did I know them, were they a Christian? And I have three answers for that one category of were they a Christian. And my answers are yes, no, and question mark. Guess what question mark means? It means I don't know. I buried people, I don't know if they were a believer or not. Which one of those three answers do you think I have the most of in my minister's log? Yes, no, or question mark? I got more question marks than anything after 20 years of ministry. More question marks than anything. See, if he is my savior, I can live for him. If I can live for him, I can go and Pastor T's log book as a yes, right? Doesn't save you, but it shows that there was salvation that took place there, right? Not that that matters for anything, but. So this morning, I just wonder, as we look at this and we think about this, their trial's over. They've stood before Christ. But what about you? Who do you say Christ is? Is he the son of man? Is he the son of God? Is he your king? Or is something else? Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we bow before you today. And there is a call here not to kowtow, to pressure, not to not to bend to what society wants. No doubt Jesus felt that pressure as he was surrounded in that court by Herod and by the, the people there that wanted him to conform to what they wanted. And yet he gives a powerful, clear testimony of who he is in his kingship and in his deity. Lord, I pray today that we would be so bold. God, we know that our our culture is not sick. Our culture's dying. We've seen that in our own neighborhood here. In the last two weeks, that our, our neighborhood, people are dying. This is no game that we're playing on Sunday morning. This is truth, and this is life, and this is death. Lord, if there's anyone here today that is far from you, that is yet to trust you, that is to confirm that Jesus is King and Savior, God, won't you draw them to yourself and save them? We pray and ask these things in Christ Jesus' name. Amen.